In this episode, I talk about classic movies and how exciting they were to me. I'll get into it. I just wanted to remember to say spoilers. Even though they're old movies, there's spoilers about a bunch of these uh, movies and TV series. So listen at your own risk. I try not to spoil everything, but it's my feelings on what happens and all that. Thanks. This is Life with Catherine, sharing stories from my heart with a smile, and I'll even sing once in a while. Together, we'll learn more about the people who inspire me. Come along, pond. Hi, and welcome to episode 45 of Life with Catherine, classic movies. I have been very impatient with movies uh, in the last year just or even six months just not satisfied when I've left a movie or a tv show that it was worth the time just uh, impatient and just yeah mostly unsatisfied by the content so I do know I love history and I do love um, a little more factual historical things but I don't want to also watch documentaries all day long um nor do I want to watch TV all day long, but uh, I just kind of wanted to find some movies. So one of my friends um, really enjoys classic movies, so I asked him to talk about which ones I should watch, and then I can end up, uh, we can discuss my opinions on them and what I felt, but I don't really have any preconceived notion before I go into the movie. Sometimes I'll have a little bit of a notion. So anyways, uh, I was flipping through um, Netflix, and I found something interesting. I love stories from old Rome and I've heard about Marcus Aurelius in uh, other historical podcasts I've listened to. Uh, I enjoy documentaries so I could tell right away this one was going to be a great fit for me. It's actually a mix of historical, no, it's a mix of story, uh, historically factual story, as well as acting. So it's got actual historians discussing the time period. So they'll have a, a piece of the acting of, of the drama, and then the historians will discuss what was happening in the motivations and how it was so relevant. And the motivations and what it meant to society in those times. So I found that to be an interesting way of storytelling. It also takes you out of the escapism, but when it comes to something historical, it, it just added to it for me. It didn't bother me at all. So I found Roman Empire Reign of Blood, which is a Netflix show from 2016. This is the story of Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus, who were both emperors of Rome and their rule is said to have been the start of the fall of Rome in the second century AD. The story starts with Marcus Aurelius as emperor of Rome in a time of constant war. His wife, also his cousin, Faustina, um, that wasn't unusual for those times. Um, they also had a son, Cassius, uh, and he's a spoiled rich kid with no sense of direction, skill, and is essentially the playboy of the empire. <laughs> no surprise. When he was a child, Cassius had two playmates, son of the um, both sons of staff who worked at the palace, and the three of them together formed a tight friendship, even though the other two boys were quite poor. They still managed to form quite a tight bond. Uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius had a, has a health scare, which causes him to start considering a successor to his throne. He takes a good look at his son and is very disappointed. He barely knows how to hold a sword, no idea how to fight, no, not really educated, it's just ugh, a mess. Um, let alone, he's, <laughs> will he be able to lead Rome? Uh, he comes down hard on his son for his lifestyle, and because the emperor is vain, he wants desperately for it to be his son that succeeds him, rather than a well-skilled soldier from his army. And I think all of his captains assumed it would be one of them and so they never brought it up it never occurred to them or not never occurred to them it, it just seemed like a given uh, there's also a senate that um, advises as well so the senate is separate from the emperor and there's power struggles in the show from uh, from that as well 
So, once he realizes what is at stake, Cassius asks his father to train him to become the next emperor. And of course, his father agrees, so he starts taking him on missions, and the son slowly starts to develop skills and also learn about decision-making for the kingdom, though he never fully is a soldier, not a warrior. While Marcus is away at battle, it is mistakenly reported back to his kingdom that he is dead and uh, his wife Faustina panics. Knowing she must make a decision to keep the lifestyle, well, a bunch of decisions to keep the lifestyle she's accustomed to, she approaches another emperor to become his new wife. When Marcus miraculously returns, she is shocked and refuses to admit to him that she has done this. But really, the son knows and everybody knows. Um, she knows if she admits to having married another, she will be killed for treason against the king. So she tries so hard to hide it. But he sends her away to a cottage in the country, which of course is true, but then she is assassinated under his orders. Marcus becomes ill and passes away. And his son Cassius becomes the new emperor. Immediately upon getting power, Cassius sends for his two childhood friends because he very quickly realizes he doesn't fully trust the other advisors or the head of his army. He doesn't trust the Senate. He doesn't trust anybody um, to keep him in power. They want, he feels like they all want the, uh, to lead Rome and be the emperor and he doesn't trust any of them to keep him in power. So he feels his two friends from childhood, he hasn't seen them for many, many years, he feels they will advise him with more of his best interests and also perhaps from a bit of a vanity, he feels they'll tell him what he wants to hear as well. Mostly just keep him in power out of loyalty, which isn't exactly what happens. <laughs> for a while it does. Uh, not long after gaining power, I mean like right away, Cassius decides he doesn't want to be at war anymore and gathers the advisors and his two friends to consult uh, on the matter. His father's advisors and the, the head of the army, they all say they should continue with war because power and domination are always more important than peace and they really don't want Rome to be seen as weak and they don't want to give up any land and they don't want to give anything. Plus they're soldiers, all they know is war and battle in those times. Uh, to everyone's surprise, Cassius announces at that meeting that he's already signed a peace treaty with their enemy without fully understanding any of the costs of the sacrifices. He just wants to be at home where he can be more spoiled and feel like a powerful emperor instead of always at battle. Literally, he doesn't even remember what the terms are. He just goes, yeah, I signed it. Now, he didn't get hosed in the battle or in the treaty or anything but it certainly was like the emperor the head of the army's like really you didn't even ask or you didn't and he goes no i'm the emperor i don't have to ask you anything i think he also feels that by ending all the wars you know like his people are all spread thin he feels that it's been too long everyone's lethargic and tired and war weary so he feels like it will gain favor with the soldiers very quickly if he lets them go home to their families. To the surprise of many, this seems to work and he is immediately a very popular emperor. Because all of a sudden there's lots of people and resources and money that's not being spent with them going out to war. Obviously there's many consequences to that as well that he doesn't even remotely understand. Uh, while in the palace, uh, Cassius chooses a lover. He sees a woman uh, in the palace and he is like, yep, that's her, that's the one. And she's actually the wife of one of his staff. Uh, this creates for many awkward moments where the husband has to report to Cassius's bedchamber to report on updates in the kingdom while his own wife is in Cassius's arms in his bed. But because Cassius is a spoiled rich kid without any values, 
people are more like commodities to him, so he doesn't even realize, it never even occurs to him that this would have implications or any impropriety to it. So eventually, the plot moves towards uh, Cassius obsessing over his legacy. He wants his face on everything, money, statues, he wants his name on everything, and he's completely obsessed about this. And he wants to be the most beloved emperor, so he hosts games with him as the major feature, as an actual fighter, and he hires his greatest gladiator to train him. Uh, because Crassus is, see I call him Crassus, uh oh, I think it's Cassius, <laughs> I put Crassus. Crassus is in the other movie, that's Spartacus. <laughs> Uh, typo. Because Cassius is still immature and not a seasoned warrior, he ends up fixing the games. He dulls the blades of the opponents and other shenanigans to assure his own victory and make it look as bloody as possible with him being an absolute fighter and basic very very quickly all the other fighters realize what's happening but they have no choice because they're going to be killed for making the emperor look bad anyways so they basically going out to slaughter and he just slaughters a lot of people uh the gladiator that he hired to be an instructor realizes this as the games start going he realizes this and he goes and checks on it and he can't believe it and he starts to truly see Cassius as the coward and the absolute monster and vain that the monster he is like how vain and it totally works with the crowd they are 100% on board with with uh, Cassius uh, the instructor the gladiator uh, the lover the woman and the others, uh, some others, plot against Cassius, and that culminates into the final conflict with poison and swords and betrayals, and and you don't know what's going to happen in the ending, who is going to prevail, because this is actual history. This isn't a made-up story where there's a happy ending or good surmounts, surmount, surmounts, surmounts over evil. Uh, this is real life uh, way in the past, so... Uh, it's not the greatest show I've ever seen, but it was enjoyable. It had some moments where it dragged a little, but I liked the historical accuracy enhanced with drama. I liked that. It all kind of tied together very nicely, and it allowed me to learn about history without um, boring me too much. <laughs> anyway, so I thought it was good, so I recommend it. And now for Spartacus, my favorite. It's funny because I've learned so much about myself. And even in just the last year, it's like, I know I like sword fighting, watching sword fighting. I know I like certain things. I know I like documentaries. I understand those things about myself. So it's quite a lot easier to pick what I like. So um, I was flipping through Netflix, no surprise. And I said, because you watch the Roman Empire, you will like Spartacus, the TV series. So I'm like, hmm, that looks interesting. And I didn't even give it much thought either. I knew I quite enjoyed the Roman Empire. So I was like, ah, you know what? Let's give it a shot. I've always been curious about the story of Spartacus. It's something you hear all the time. Or not all the time, but you hear. Just like when I watched Ben-Hur, it was like, you've heard of Ben-Hur, but a lot of people haven't actually seen it or remember watching it. So it was quite interesting for me to go, hmm, let's watch this. The acting in the pilot of the Spartacus TV series is rough. It's bumpy, I won't lie. <laughs> but hold on, it's worth it. So it's Spartacus is played by Andy Whitfield in the show, and uh, this one I haven't scripted. I kind of wanted to just talk freeform about my thoughts. Why should you watch Spartacus? Well, it is the story of, the age-old story of a slave rising up for freedom, of people, um, values and loyalties, hardship, overcoming hardships, um, betrayals, power and how sometimes it's not that black and white 
but other times it is. So Andy Whitfield plays Spartacus. He had only played a few things, I think, like Tarzan and a few things. Anyways, he was awesome in this. So it starts in the very beginning with Spartacus. It's not actually his name. There is a legend already in this show. There's a legend of Spartacus. So uh, they never actually tell you his name. So it's him and it's himself and his wife. And uh, he is kind of, he's a soldier on the ground, but more just defending, I would say on the local level. And Glauber is the head of the army in Rome. He comes to town and starts a dialogue. And he says, if all of you, recruiting them, if all of you join my army, what I will do is I will help you uh, wipe out these, or I'll help you um, deal with these bad guys that are, are hurting everything around you and that you're fighting. And then after that, you can join me and we'll go fight for Rome and you'll have your, you know, your freedom and all this, but you'll be free and there's a cost, but okay. Or maybe if I remember correctly, now that I'm saying it, it's more that you can, we'll help you with this and then you'll, you'll be good and everything will be good. It's like, oh, and then, uh, the person who is later called Spartacus is, really starts to question Glauber and Glauber sees the leadership in this guy right away and he realizes if he enhances that if he harnesses it he can get the people on his side so he answers Spartacus's questions and he kind of plays to what Spartacus is looking for so they all sign up and they cheer yay so they go to the battle and uh Spartacus's wife has visions more in her dreams. She's very much a sensitive seer and she dreams of him with a, I think it's a snakes or something. I think it's snakes and that will be the time he dies and she's worried. She's really spooked that this is going to be it. And he's like, nope. And he says, I have to do it. I have to save everybody. I have to save you. So he eventually goes to battle with the Romans. And they're fighting what the Romans want them to do. And they beat that group. And then Spartacus says, yeah, now let's go free our town. And Glauber's like, no, you're not going that way. You're coming to Rome. And uh, you signed on, so too bad for you. And he's like, well, what about our people? And he's like, I don't care. They, that doesn't matter to me. And he's like, uh, but we're going to kill them all. We're going to, you know, cleanse the bad guys. And he's like, nope. So they, Spartacus ends up becoming a slave to Rome and is brought to a uh, gladiator. I think he's brought us as a slave to Rome. And um, the owner of the local gladiator school, Badiatus, he, he's a fantastic character, but Badiatus is the head of the local school, and his wife is played by, oh my god, Lucy Lawless. She's amazing in this. So he ends up being bought by the head of the gladiator school and becomes a gladiator. And when he steps onto the property, he's, you know, uh, an underdog, and the actual champion of Capua is Crixus and you don't realize this but in the story they end up going and doing a prequel midway through the series they do a prequel a bunch of prequel episodes a whole season um, because Andy Whitfield ended up getting sick uh, with cancer and wasn't able to continue with the show and he eventually died but um, he wasn't able to um, continue at the time so they decided to do some prequel episodes and the actual pilot of the show is Spartacus arriving but the prequels end with Spartacus arriving so it's kind of ties in really cool but you realize the battles that Crixus the current champion the the battles that he had gone through to become the champion against Gannicus, who is literally my favorite character in the whole series. So against all odds, 
these things happened. And so Crixus is his nemesis and eventually becomes his loyal brother. Uh, and there's also an interesting storyline with Lavidia. Yes. So she is Lucy Lawless, the wife of the um, school, the gladiator school. So she runs it and it, they're not really seen as royalty. They're kind of almost royalty. So they're not really respected, but they still are. And he has delusions of grandeur. So they're always struggling for money. And these two are so manipulative and ridiculous. They're so made for each other. So there's also a subplot, which is uh, Lavidia, the wife, and her friend, Elithia. It is an epic story of those two's friendship because they really don't like each other at all. They literally spite for each other. But as women trying to get ahead, they, they have no choice. They have to bound together. But it's the hate that they hate each other, but they need each other so much to get what they need. And there is some storytelling in there that's really interesting of the things they have to do. And it's not all obvious, but um, they are always devil speak and they're always so polite, but so spiteful. And they end up growing as characters and people quite a lot. Uh, and they have no choice. They're just always together, even though they can't stand each other. And one will get power than the other, and then another will get power than another. And it just goes back and forth. So it's the story of all of these people. So Spartacus, um, Glauber ends up giving him the name Spartacus, I believe. Uh, so it's Spartacus is from Thrace, so he's Thracian, and it's supposed to be a derogatory term in the show where they're just not they're subpar people uh, in the land. And then there's also uh, the Germans who joined the, the Ludus, the school. And there's also Crixus, and I'm totally blanking on what um, he was, what nationality he was. But anyway, so it's all of these groups kind of interchanging and intertwining and trying to work together. So, Badiatus, Glover comes to see Badiatus, and uh, Badiatus, the owner of the school, is having trouble breaking Spartacus and, and getting his loyalty. And very quickly, he realizes how much Spartacus does not like Glover, and this sparks his interest. So there must be something there that he can use. So he re uh, ends up telling, uh, talking to Spartacus and saying, oh, okay, um, you Glauber um, ended up, your, his wife, Spartacus's wife, ends up being uh, sold because they didn't have anyone to protect them. She ends up being sold and you don't know where to. And uh, so the owner of the school, Badiatus, agrees to go searching for Spartacus's wife if Spartacus does what he's told and, and gets in line and helps lead the people. And then also he will, if he becomes champion and as he wins more and more, he will have money. Therefore, he will earn, by the time the wife is found, he will earn money to buy their freedom. And there are a whole bunch of characters uh, that, that go in and out along the way like Ash that are so strong, but seem weak, but are so manipulative, but so smart. Well, there's a black market for things in this. And... Uh, the idea that people are commodities. These slaves basically are commodities and they work for um, the, the royalty. They work for people and they're not seen as people at all. And uh, Crixus has uh, Navia, his true love, and, and the complicated things that happen with that because the wife of the Ludus, the school, uh, really wants to possess Crixus and then she doesn't find out till much later of this uh, relationship and and the things that all happen because of that. So it culminates into a war from the slaves of the kingdom of the Ludus and basically you're running a gladiator school of all these powerful strong fighters uh, at some point they might revolt but they it takes um, time and 
a lot of craftiness for it to happen. And plus, Crixus and Spartacus hate each other. So he's trying to get Crixus on his side, but he just won't. And Crixus likes being the the favorite of everyone, the champion of Capua. So then, uh, as the story goes on, um, Spartacus frees everyone. Spartacus and Crixus uh, and Gannicus end up freeing everyone and all these wackiness ensues and they no longer work for the Ludus. They're free men, but not everyone is free. So he sparks a revolution of slaves rising up and freeing, but it's not always easy to convince people to go against their master and how do these things evolve? And Gannicus is one of the only soldiers to earn his freedom gladiators to earn his freedom so he doesn't want to have to do what he said what everyone says but he ends up being roped in and manipulative but he he doesn't want to he doesn't want to just fall in line he wants to be free of it and and Spartacus is like you're not going to be free of it you're always going to have it over you because you have to carry this piece of paper that says you're free it's a piece of paper it can be burned. It can be revoked by a king. It can, you know, you're only as free and nobody else around you is. And so it's quite interesting. Spartacus, the TV series. So then you follow through and Crassus ends up, who is the, uh, like Glauber is, is real as part of the story, but also uh, Crassus becomes the villain of the later series, and it's Crassus and his son, who is ugh, creepy. So it's those two end up as the series goes on much longer. Those two fighting for power, and and Crassus is very intelligent with war. And he outsmarts Spartacus so many times. And you can see him. He's not used to fighting this way. But it ends up making him very strong. And the things that can happen when you're trying to get different cultures to come together. People don't want to join Spartacus, but they do. And Spartacus doesn't want to be a leader, but he has to. They end up taking over villages. They end up taking over cities. And then the the royalty, the people of the city become the slaves and what is that like and how can you gain respect and there's pirates involved and the sword fighting is awesome they never go small on that it's always hardcore like Spartacus is fighting 16 men at one point and he's like I don't care the gods are on my side and literally he's like someone throws a sword at him and it lands at his feet rather than rather than at him and he's like oh just bring it on so the Digital effects aren't always that great, but I appreciated the effort and it looks cool, but it doesn't look believable, but it looks cool and there's slow-mo action, but it's not overdone. I wish there was some more understatedness rather than always so obvious, but that's okay. So partway through the series, uh, Andy Whitfield ended up being sick. I don't know when he passed away specifically, if it was during the the new taping. So they ended up having to recast him, the lead role of the TV series, which was quite interesting. And uh, Spartacus has a secondary love interest after his wife ends up having things happen with his wife storyline. I don't want to spoil it. So he has a love interest and I don't particularly like her character. But you could see their chemistry was there and there was a softness to it. Even though he liked her, he was just lonely and she really liked him. So it was very like soft and relaxed, but there was chemistry there. You could see it. And then when they recast it, he was great. He knew he was a great Spartacus, but there was no chemistry. It was so painful to watch and awkward you know, it, it showed me about casting how much it has to be about chemistry. It doesn't matter how great an actor they are, or I guess it does at some point. There has to be chemistry. So it, it just didn't work at all. It ended up making you not really like her character when I enjoyed her. I I would have liked to enjoyed her growth more, but it was just so awkward. <laughs> But uh, she ended up having a nice storyline uh, uh, beside the point and strong. And Navia, that's Crixus's love interest, and their storyline is really strong as well. And uh, her turning into a fighter 
out of necessity um, and out of desperation to regain um, some self-respect that she had lost and had taken from her. And I quite like their story. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't like the, the negative stuff, but I quite liked the evolution of that story. And uh, all in all, it was fantastic show. Had almost no negative parts. I mean, it had almost no boring parts. It always moved forward. The story keeps going. The battles are really interesting. Each one, they have this young boy who wants to become a leader. He's the son of one of the leaders. And uh, Spartacus, as be, being owned by the school, is, is set to like entertain him and amuse him and connect with him and convince him to host his birthday there. And Batiatus wants to harness that relationship so that when the young boy becomes king, he can ride on the coattails of it. And that kid just makes decisions that he has no idea how harsh the repercussions are, that he doesn't see them as people at all, and no, none of the royalty do, and... The intricacies of running a ludus, a, a school that has, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I don't want to get into that. I want. It, I'd rather you watched it and how it can become so complicated, and the struggle for freedom and the struggle for individuality, the struggle for self identity. It was very poignant in this show and it was always enjoyable and yeah the sword fighting is so cool and sometimes they have to fight with practice swords and Andy Whitfield the weight was on his shoulders to make it extraordinary and fight and he did a great job. The pilot is rough so just keep going <laughs> but you'll love Bad Yadis because he's a good guy but he's not he's not a good guy and he's not a bad guy. He's just a result of his upbringing and he's a result of, of desperate power plays of trying to get ahead. And in one environment, it's almost like if you go to a high school. In one environment, you're the mo there's a popular kid in the high school. Well, what if you took 10 high schools and put them together? The kid who's used to being popular there, you put them in the next level they're at the lower end of the pool or they're fighting for the top spot with nine other most popular kids and how interesting that dynamic can become and then they go back to their regular world and they're powerful again and there's always someone more powerful and stronger and there's always someone trying to come up behind you and become that next leader as well and that's real life now what you do with it and how you act and how you react to those situations and what you desire, what values you have all um, come into play. But anyways, I quite enjoyed Spartacus. Now Spartacus the movie I ended up watching after, which is Kirk Douglas, which is like an epic movie, award winning. And I don't, I'm not going to talk about it too much. Uh, in the, they had a little bit of differences. Well. Quite a lot of differences from the movie but there were like Spartacus is born a slave in the movie but in the TV series he is becomes a slave uh, and all of these the movie with Kirk Douglas had a lot more underlying religion uh, it was a lot dirtier and more It was a very different story than the TV series, but it needed to be. It was part of its time and it completely holds up. So obviously there's different characters. Crixus is in it, but not as much. Batiatus is in it, but they say his name differently. And Crassus is the villain right away in the movie rather than the TV series, it culminates into that, uh, into Crassus being it, and it's Rome, oh, and in the TV series, um, 
Julius Caesar is in it, and it's him going from a soldier into like one of the emperor. So it's him as well, and his story intertwined. And yeah, it was an epic adventure. <laughs> there was a scene that I literally was screaming at the TV. It was so exciting. The kind of culmination of how Crixus and Spartacus eventually join together. And it's just like... Spartacus goes flying through the air and you're like, oh my god, you just, you don't even see it coming. Even though I've told you, you still won't even believe it. You won't believe what happens. And then later on, all of the intense battles, which are very respectful to the viewer. So it was <laughs> screaming at the TV and uh, it's respectful to the time period not everyone's gonna make it. Sorry, it's just respectful for the time period. This isn't Hollywood, um, written by Hollywood romance writers. This is <laughs> a free-for-all and, and it's painful and the finale is really strong. You won't be disappointed. So I love the TV series. I completely enjoyed the movie in its own right. And the differences and the subtleties and, and the battle that happens. I really don't want to spoil too much, but in in the Spartacus movie, it doesn't end well for anyone. But in some pieces of the TV series, it can end a little bit better for some. But it's it's a little more about the s freedom. It's a lot about freedom. So uh, it was totally epic and enjoyable. I'm so glad I watched it. And partway through, I guess around episode four is when I started talking to my friend that likes movies. And it was like, you're watching that? Oh my God. And I was like, the scene where Crixus and Spartacus and oh my God, and then this and that. And it was, I, I really don't want to spoil what happens, but every single episode was amazing in its own right and it culminates to a strong finale so I really really loved it and I will watch it again just not yet I'll watch it again in a bit so I highly recommend Spartacus the TV series okay this is gonna be a very long episode if I talk about all the movies so I'll have to do another episode later um, I'm going to take a break for a minute and I'm going to talk about movies that I'm interested in seeing that I haven't seen yet uh, so I watched Alien um, from the 90s or whatever. I watched Alien the movie, but I haven't seen the sequels yet. So I'm going to wait till I've seen all the sequels. I still want to watch the original Blade Runner, which I haven't seen in forever. I'm not sure I ever really saw it. Uh, and there's a sequel recently. I want to watch a bunch of Stanley Kubrick movies. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Mars Attacks. There's a bunch of things. I think I want to watch Dune again as well. Although, again, I'm not really sure I ever really watched it. So there's a bunch of things that I want to watch. All right. So I am also going to talk about Conan the Barbarian that I watched on Netflix. Um, oh, yeah, I also want to see... The, I started The Three Musketeers, which was cool. Um, I'm also in future going to talk about The Three Musketeers, uh, the Napoleon documentary, uh, Excalibur, The Seahawk was awesome. You should watch that. Count of Monte Cristo, I didn't love it, but apparently I need to watch a newer version. I have to talk about a very long engagement. Oh, it was amazing. Ben-Hur. It's going to take a few. What else? So today I'm going to talk about Conan. Uh, Tron I want to talk about uh, at a later date. Scaramouche I want to talk about at a later date. So today, let, what else? Uh, Alien and oh, Les Miserables. No, I did not enjoy the Russell Crowe one at all. <laughs> so today I'm going to talk about uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and I'm going to talk about Conan. And the last one was, I think I am going to talk about the Seahawk. So I'm going to put these other ones away. Sorry for the noise. 2001 A Space Odyssey is... Um, one of the most beloved science fiction movies. It's epic um, for its ingenuity, for its use of music, 
for its yeah ingenuity and I'll explain why. Stanley Kubrick uh, did the movie and it's quite interesting because the very beginning of the movie you wonder what's going on because the screen is all black for quite a while and it's just music like the intro of a symphony is just music and you're like what and it goes on for a while so it shocks you out of the inner dialogue you have in your life as a viewer and it draws you into it what's going on it it pulls you into uh, at least wondering what's going on and yeah it pulls you out of your inner dialogue and then eventually the screen opens and it's caveman caveman and caveman time and monkeys uh, yeah I guess it's more monkeys and them apes let's go with apes they are being apes in nature so they make noises they are jealous of each other they eat they you know fight they do all these things It is a long scene of just apes being themselves and their natural instincts. And what that does, it gives you, after a while, a sense of being there. And then all of a sudden, it shoots you into the future as far as possible to humans being in space. So if they had opened on humans being in space there wouldn't be this contrast of look how far we've come and this shock this eeriness and it's a very strange feeling to go from the past to the future so fast especially when you're talking about apes and men and women being in the future in space flying around Jupiter like it's so such a strange feeling um, the music in the movie is very epic it's the Blue Danube and uh, well by Strauss they use it they're just it's just like this small amount of music and they use it repeatedly in different ways it's not noisy it's a very very quiet movie there's not a lot of dialogue every word is there for a reason it's very quiet which emulates space there isn't a lot of noise and it makes things very eerie it's very very quiet and there's a lot of space behind the people rather than a nice tight shot it's always a little bit odd and because it takes place in space the furniture is just a little bit off the everything like it's off in design it's a little bit off in placement everything's just a little bit off to get you out of feeling comfortable everything feels like oh we're not on earth anymore so it's really interesting because they use the blue danube and it's this nice this nice music and then it just like it's very very slow and then it picks up the pace and picks up the pace and you start to realize your heart's racing more and more he's very good at using that music to make you feel very unsettled the music is very unsettling in this movie and because it's symphony it's such a contrast to being in outer space that it keeps you on edge as well he does that very well with the cinematography and the storytelling and it's very epic being in outer space and having this music going there is nothing formulaic about this movie at all. It's special and original right out of the gate. And you'll hear that from anyone who's seen it. Um, the apes in the beginning, you can easily get lost in it, but once in a while you can see it, you can, you get the feeling that it's a person in the outfit. But for the time, it was pretty amazing. Like it's people in outfits. It's not screen, green screened or anything. Uh, let's see what else. Um, so as they go up into space um, you realize I don't know it's strange because 
it's this fellow who is the the story takes place around a couple different people but it starts out with this fellow going to a stopover on his way like a stopover near Jupiter on his way to Clavius which um has rumored to have some things go on so he's kind of the representative of the government the voice the mouthpiece for the government who's making this stopover to kind of calm the fears but represent what the government wants them to do and then kind of enact the wishes of the government and then it's the people the pilots of the ship who become the main story um, Dave and his um, co-pilot I guess if you want to call it um, so it's this weird the fellow sitting in the lounge which is the the chairs are all a little bit off everything is just a little bit off and they're having this banal conversation him with some other business people that he's known and come across and it's like oh how's the wife and kids and what's politics but it's so quiet and banal it's literally like an airport run-in and people who don't have a lot of originality and personality it's just like mm, yeah. it's very very strange so I just liked it when he goes oh I'm just on my way up to Clavius um, it's cool because you've they really play up the being in space but they don't overdo it so the stewardesses have like adhesive shoes so she'll just be walking along and then all of a sudden she'll walk along the 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 walls and then up to the ceiling and then like something's floating in the air they catch it and they you know you can't just put food down you have to adhese the food to the table and yeah so I, I feel like there were some things some continuity things with with the food but I can't remember exactly what it was that I was like well that's not realistic um, yeah, there's very little dialogue in this movie. And you notice it, but it, it's kind of freeing. You don't really mind that there's no dialogue for long periods of time. So at one point, this fellow is representing the government and he's at a conference of all these people who are at the, um, whatever you want to call it, uh, stopover airport. And um, he's actually arguing with them because they don't like the cover story that the government has come up with well there's a problem and nobody knows what's going on with this machine that has been um, in charge of running the spaceship there's this machine and then the pilots and something's gone awry something's gone haywire and nobody knows what's going on so he's been sent to, t to do an audit and check and then also convey what the government wants so instead of really being worried about what is going on with this janky computer system in this weird spot in Clavius, they're really, everyone in the room is more annoyed at the cover story, which is very funny to me. They don't like the cover story that there's an epidemic and there's a virus or whatever it is, an epidemic, and it makes the people at home nervous. So it's more calming the fears of people rather than... <laughs> You know, there could be aliens and it could be a violent war, but let's just pretend it's an epidemic and, and like it, the real truth is so much worse than an epidemic, but people aren't told and they're not ready to understand it. So it's quite a contrast and it's quite funny to watch him argue this. And he's kind of standing there going, really? But he has no choice. He has to calm their fears and they're having this kind of dumb debate. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, and then on the spaceship, a guy goes for a run, but he, of course, has weighted shoes. So there's always this this clunkiness to everybody's movements. That's what it is. Everybody's movements are clunky, but it keeps you in the moment of the scene that they are not on Earth. Something is just a little bit off all the time to remind you, and it keeps you in the moment. And that was really interesting to me. So the idea is... You can't just have a spaceship and then everybody 
yeah, that's right. And everybody um, is just using up all the air. So they have people in hibernation. Uh, so now we're ship, we're switching to being on this ship and what's going on. And Dave is the pilot and he has a co-pilot. And um, he interacts with this computer, which helps them make decisions and run algorithms. And it's supposed to be like artificial intelligence, AI. And um, so this computer monitors the people that are asleep who will become awake eventually and then they're they won't be in a state of stasis anymore they'll be breathing and moving around and living but it's almost like it extends their life a little and then they be awake and blah blah, blah. so i thought it was interesting i made a note that they stated that in the movie that in hibernation you only have to breathe once a minute and that's why it's able to um sustain you so I thought that was really interesting. And this computer is so logical, but it's also been trained to react in human ways to make them feel not lonely, that they're in outer space. So the computer's really funny because it'll be like, oh, is it possible there was human error? And it'd be like, human error, or is it possible the computer made a mistake? And be like, human error is the only possibility. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe there was an algorithm mix up or maybe there's a mistake. Human error is the only possibility. So then uh, right before, it actually the movie has an intermission, which is really funny, but it's a long movie. But you start to feel something deeper going on because Dave and his co-pilot start to feel like, oh, I don't know. I think this computer is has an ulterior motive than, than the major plan that we have and something's going on. So they end up turning the sound off. Well, you find out right before the intermission that the computer can read lips. So he's reading, the computer Hal is reading their lips that there's a problem and that they're suspicious of him. And it just changes the game that this computer is even more human than you think, or more AI than you think. And it just kind of gives you this very sinking, uneasy feeling that, oh, it's on and something's happening. Because how can a computer read lips too? And that it's going to be a lot deeper of a story than that. So anyways, there's an intermission with that same music. And then, um, yeah, it changes the tone of the movie. It springboards you into the part two. And it just adds a really creepy factor to it. So then you come back from the intermission. And I don't want to tell you the ending. But we have a second half. The computer ends up... Spoilers for all this... The computer ends up being threatened, feeling threatened by everyone. So he feels he has to eliminate them unless they follow what he wants. And you don't really understand why. They address that in the second movie, in the sequel. But you don't really understand why, but he's just trying to process and function as if he was a human but he's not so there's a logic and there's feelings that are programmed but they're not real feelings so he starts to feel threatened so very he just the computer just looks one day and says oh i'm threatened and just turns off the life support of all of these people in hibernation i think there's three of them just clinical quiet silent as if it was a flip of a switch which it truly is but it kind of showed the gravity of what a computer wouldn't hesitate or or debate it's like i feel threatened click and it was so simplistic of an action that it spoke louder than any scene of a person realizing it and running and music it was just this clinical flip flip of a switch and those humans were gone. And it's also, the computer has a lot more personality in its voice in the, in the first half of the movie. And then it, as it becomes more threatened, it's more affirmative, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave. And it has this monotone 
creepiness of a machine, but it still has this underlying, I know you're doing something, Dave, and I'm patronizing you. I'm going, affirmative, Dave. And Hal's voice, I was saying to my friend, it reminded me of the creepy Willy Wonka when he's in the boat and he's like, everything is getting scary. And he just kind of talk singing but he's got this creepiness to him and the actual sound of his voice it reminded me of that and there's an epic scene where Hal is being shut down and he starts to sing a song and the song starts going slower but it very slowly happens is very creepy and um so there is an epic line in the movie that anyone who's seen it will quote back to you, which is, open the pod bay doors, Hal, Hal, open the pod bay doors. And that is the other, the co-pilot is stuck outside and he's about to save him, but he does, the Hal is threatened by them and doesn't end up letting him save him and he ends up having to float off into space. And then Dave is alone. So... Now Dave is alone with Hal, and now Hal is kind of sh- is shut down, and Dave is alone in space. So what's going to happen now? Well, what happens is he comes across this alien life force and is springboarded into this psychedelic light show Uh, into the world of this alien ambiance, whatever it is, their world, but it's not really a world. And then it becomes totally David Lynch, where he's old, but he's young. But he's different ages, but he's also not. And it's almost like the alien race encaptures a life and can play it in uh, almost like on a repeat in different orders. And they're trying to share this and share some knowledge or communicate with humans. So they end up taking Dave and use him as a mouthpiece, which will happen in the sequel. And the last bit of the movie is Dave trying to navigate this alien, very, very foreign world running into different versions of himself at different ages. And it's very, very quiet and spooky. And there's this one scene where the guy, he doesn't know it's himself. And he's standing there in a doorway looking in. And it's, he's looking at the back of an old man who's doing something, writing or playing a board game or something. And he very slowly turns around and looks at him. But it takes a long time. But it's very out-of-body experience. Very David Lynch. Of course, this predates David Lynch. But I actually got a book out of the library. I only read a a chapter of it or even less. And it said uh, that the director's son... No. A director's son went to the screening, the private screening. For some reason, he got to go... And uh, he saw a private screening of this movie and he realized very quickly that this movie was going to be relevant to his parents' generation, but also it was going to be harnessed and encaptured and beloved by his generation. And the sequel, I don't really get it. And I really haven't had a chance to talk to my friend about it to truly um, compute what I saw. I think I'll have to watch it again, but I didn't really connect to it the way I did the first one, but maybe I just watched it too close to each other or something. So I'm going to have to really rewatch it and think about the second one. I mean, I get what actually happened on the screen, but what are the underlying creepiness, the underlying things and harnessing the reality of what it is? It's a very different movie from the first one. Uh, But anyways, um, I've really enjoyed this one. 
Now, if I'm talking about it, sometimes I mistakenly have a brain freeze and call it Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but I'm talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey is what I'm actually talking about. The music is um, Strauss and also Kachikarian, so I recommend those. They were just, it was very well done. I really appreciated the storytelling, the movie, the quiet. I appreciated everything about it. Would I watch it again? Yeah, in a while, but it's not the type of movie you would rewatch over and over. I would not see it on the big screen because there's too much outer space and I sure as heck wouldn't watch it in 3D. Well, maybe I'd watch it on big screen, but I wouldn't watch it on 3D. It's a very long movie, but it's worth it. I'm very glad it was recommended. Okay, so Conan. Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Earl Jones. I was flipping through Netflix again. That's what I watch. I don't watch TV much anymore. So anyways, I was flipping through Netflix and I was like, oh, I'm just going to watch this one. Um, the other podcast I listened to, The Drunken Taoist with Daniele Bolelli. He always talks about this movie. His daughter watches it. She's very, very young, Isabella. Um, anyway, so I keep thinking of it and I'm like, I'm just going to watch this. So nobody told me to. I just watched it. So I'm not going to tell you about the whole movie, but it's Conan as a boy, his his struggle, his parents are killed. It's his struggle to become himself. So I'm just going to tell you some quotes from it. I highly recommend it. It was really well done. There's a lot of humor and there's a lot of um, battles. Um, So he and his comrade, so a fellow he saves, they're walking along and they're in a little village and it's a poorer neighborhood. So there's this gypsy lady or whatever approaches them on the street and she says, a pittance to protect you from evil. And the the comrade goes, lady, I am evil. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. And then uh, his love interest, Conan's love interest says, uh, he meets her and they're all, they're spies kind of thing. And they're trying to, enter the bad guy's lair, James Earl Jones, or his, one of the lairs he owns. And she looks at Conan and says, do you know what dangers lurk behind those walls? No? Then you go first. (laughs) I thought that was awesome. But not in a way that she's scared or weak or anything. She's just like, now you go first. And then she looks at him and goes, uh, oh my God, what's down there? And what on earth could smell so bad? And then she's like, "Eh, do you really want to live forever? Let's go look. I thought that was like an epic line. Because that's the life of someone who lives in that world is, "Eh, let's let's just go. And battles are normal for them. So do you really want to live forever? Let's go look. And we're probably going to die, basically. But "Ah, let's go look anyways. So then there's this moment where um, this girl is being offered as a tribute to this gigantic snake, an asp, and uh, she's in a trance, and so they, they do this little hypnosis on her, and she falls into the snake pit, but she's actually disappointed and shocked. There's no snake because she was convinced she was going to be this offering, uh, this amazing offering. So she just lands on the ground splat, and she's like, what? What? And she's all mad and disappointed. Turns out the snake is dead because Conan and the other people killed the snake and literally are in the middle of escaping. I thought that was so funny because here's this girl like on her, like basically landing on her butt going, what? And then it pans over and they're escaping and they've killed the snake, which is just hilarious to me. So um, Conan's love interest, I, I don't remember her name, sorry, but uh, she's really crafty and smart. So she's like trying to get herself catapulted up out of the cave that they're in so she basically this guy comes after her she kills him she's like oh she wraps a rope around the guy and drops him down so that he his body weight catapults her up she just holds onto the rope I thought that was a really cool scene because she doesn't even give it a lot of thought she's just like oh I'm gonna do this and then away you go up whereas I think a lot of movies these days they would really build it up and and take too long this was more eh, I'm gonna do this and then up she goes and I thought it was really funny so James Earl Jones has this snake this skinny long snake that he keeps with him that's his 
just one of his, what are they called from Harry Potter? I can't remember. Talisman, whatever. Anyways, it's a snake, but he can actually harden the snake, like lengthen it and harden it. And it, be oh Jesus. <laughs> and it, he uses it as an arrow and as a poisonous arrow to kill people, which uh, I thought that was an interesting story piece. Uh, it just shows how much manipulative power he has. Um, it's very malleable, uh, the idea of snakes and being in his world. So as we get closer to the end of the movie, Conan is like doing his A-team moment where he's getting ready to go to battle. And he looks at his comrade and goes, where did you get all this stuff? Because the guy went and got a bunch of stuff to use in their little A-team moment. He goes, where did you get all this stuff? And the guy replies, well, the gods are pleased with you. And Conan looks at him and goes, are they going to help? No? Well, then tell them to stay out of my way. <laughs> I just thought it was really frank. And so kind of 20th century, but it still harkened back to those times. And it's just, it was humorous. And there was an underlying humor to a lot of this. So then in the very, right before Conan goes to his big battle, Crumb is the god that he prays to. So he's standing there just kind of defeated and, but ready, realizing it's all or nothing. So he goes, Crumb, I've never prayed to you before. Are we good men? No one will remember. Does it even matter? What matters is that two stood against many. That's what's important. Battle pleases you, Crumb. So grant me one request. Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you. I just thought it was a very pure speech. Wackiness ensues. They have to save a girl. La la la. So I loved Conan very much. Thought it was quite enjoyable. You know what? I think that's enough for today. I talked about a lot of movies. So I recommend those. I found a lot of enjoyment in the different experience experiences I got from each movie. So I'm going to talk about a whole bunch on the next episode or on a future episode. And uh, I'm really hoping to delve into the Three Musketeers and the legend of them. I have a couple things in the works, so I am working on it. I'd rather not just go on and on about possible future episodes because I know I've done that before and I haven't actually made them happen yet. So I will just continue to plug away, go to school, better myself, live my life and uh, tell you about it once in a while. Thanks.